Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 45. It's great to be back with you. I'm Liam. And I'm Lisa. And we've got another great episode this week where uh, we're going to skip past the news list this week because obviously the big news, uh, if you're in the early childhood education and care sector, is the release uh, by Early Learning Everyone Benefits of the, uh, the State of Early Learning in Australia 2017. This is the second report that uh, that campaign, which is uh, you know primarily overseen by Early Childhood Australia, has been put out. And for the data uh, nerds out there like myself and Lisa and, and Leanne, who unfortunately can't be with us, uh, who's still trekking overseas, there's some fantastic stuff in there uh, for, for people in the sector, as well as obviously some things that still Australia needs to put a significant amount of, of work in. Isn't that right, Lisa? It sure is. And you know how you said that Leanne was away? Mm. She is. But you know what she did this week? Oh, what did she do? She sent a recommendation. Ah. <laughs> so one of us is going to have to read it and, and, and pretend that we're Leanne. Well, Can I you know, do a Leanne pretend? I don't think so because I know nothing about it. it. It's not on the shared Google document, Lisa. Which yes, is it is. high it crime. Is. Oh, it is now. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst crime you can make on the preparation for the show is not putting it in the shared document. But it is there now. Um so we were obviously we, we we would obviously be discussing this report this week anyway, but we were really fortunate. We sort of reached out to to early learning everyone benefits, and they've uh, agreed to sort of come on the show and, and talk with us. And not only that, they've actually put up uh, the CEO of Early Childhood Australia and the campaign spokesperson for Early Learning Everyone Benefits, Sam Page. Now, regular listeners will know we've chatted with Sam uh, quickly a couple of times in the podcast before last year. Lisa had a chance to have a chat with her at the ECA conference up in Darwin, and I had a quick chat with her after Kate Ellis's National Press Club address uh, last year. It was last year as well. Was that earlier this year? Where's the time gone? I think it was, a, I think it was last year. It's all gone bye-bye oh, too fast. this year, actually. It might have been this year. So this will be Sam's third appearance on the show. We're, we're grateful we can have a sort of longer chat with her about this report and what it means for, for early childhood in Australia. So uh, grateful you're with us and, and stick with us just after a quick break and we'll be back with Sam Page talking the state of early learning in Australia in 2017. All right, welcome back and we're here with Sam Page. Sam, welcome to the Early Education Show. Oh, thank you for having me. Lovely sh- to be here. I should say welcome back. This is actually your, your third appearance on the, the – you're one of our serial serial guests. We, I spoke to you after the National Press Club address last year and Lisa bailed you up at the ECA conference in Darwin. Excellent. I'm always happy to – Participate. As we said in the intro, we're obviously going to have a bit of a look into the the state of early learning report that's been released for 2017. Yeah, but Sam, it'd be great for, for, to talk about um, yourself for a bit. So, why don't you tell us about your role at ECA and I guess your role as um, in the campaign for early learning, everyone benefits. Yes, lovely. Well, it's it's a real privilege to um, work for ECA. So, I'm the CEO of the national organisation. Many people would know that we've got branches around every state and territory, but the national organisation operates out of Canberra and um, to the national board that is appointed by state and territory branches. And so I'm very privileged to have that job and to lead the national team. We have about uh, 40 staff now, uh, most of whom are based in Canberra, but some are around the country. And we see that advocacy is the core of our purpose. You know, that's why we exist. Um, we do a lot of other work as well. We provide online learning and publications and projects uh, such as Kids Matter, but um, advocacy is really where it all started and what we still see as um, core to our mission. 
Yay! <laughs> and what's um, and, and obviously the the ECA is obviously has sort of run a lot of advocacy campaigns and work. But do you want to just tell us a little bit about early learning? Everyone benefits of so the reports sort of come out under that that banner today. Yes, yes, I oh, know. Thank you for reminding me. Um, so. When I first um, joined uh, ECA, there was a lot of discussion about how difficult it is to get early learning on the political agenda and to get it given the priority that it deserves. And it's quite, it is a a compelling argument, uh, the economic argument, the social argument, the ethical argument for early learning is very strong. but it is difficult to get it um, high on the list of priorities for politicians, and that's because it's not high on the list of priorities for the Australian public, and even families with young children don't necessarily understand the importance of quality and early learning and the different types of services and the investment that's needed. So there was a lot of conversation when I first joined ECA, I got to trip around the country and meet with members and branches and hold consultation sessions and ask everybody their opinion. That's the um, joy of being new in a role and new in a sector. And people kept telling me, we need to put this on the map. We need to put, we need to raise public awareness about the importance of early childhood education. And um, and so we had lots of conversations with with different organisations and we decided that we really needed to run a broad scale campaign and we needed to run it over a number of years and it needed to really focus on raising awareness amongst parents and amongst politicians about why this really matters and what all of the arguments are for increasing Australia's investment uh, in early education. And we had lots of conversations about language. So language is, is tricky in this space, early childhood education and care is uh, very is a term that's very dear to the sector, but it's a hard one to use in public awareness um, ex- exercises and activities. So after 18 months of consultation with potential partners and our own branches and our own um, network of members, uh, we came up with the Early Learning Everyone Benefits campaign and we are really pleased to support that campaign, not only on behalf of ECA as a major stakeholder, but with a number of significant partners who've contributed financially to the campaign and partners who provide in-kind support and things like access to their database of parents, for example. And the campaign was launched last year by uh, Dame Quentin Bryce and uh, Wendy McCarthy. And since then, it has really focused on building a database of educators and a database of families who are engaged and active um, with the campaign and that's been through the support of all our partners. And one of the uh, things we're most proud of under the campaign is the State of Early Learning in Australia report which was produced for the first time last year just in time for the launch of the campaign and now we've just released the second uh, report for 2017 and it's a mammoth effort it takes you know I mean it's all data that is publicly available but it takes a lot of time to pull it all together and we're very proud of it well on behalf of data yeah, nerds really and geeks like everywhere it it- thank you thank you <laughs> thank you <laughs> We're both saying the same thing. I think we were. I love so many graphs. It's so exciting. (laughs) And they're all in the one place. So instead of going to the source material, we can just go to this. It's very, very helpful. There is still so much we can do with it. Like we'd really like to have playgroup data and maternal child health data and um, 
we, we'd like to keep talking about early learning across home and community and um, education settings. But it takes a long time to do really um, uh, access different databases and make sense of the data and find a way of including it. Um, and this year we really focused on state territory breakdown. So that's been the snapshots that have been released um, to go with the report. But next year we'll look at expanding the data that's included. Yeah, and I think you actually, in the report, you actually highlight that one of the big challenges in Australia is the the the, the, the federalist approach. So we have so many layers of um, responsibility for, for early childhood education and care. It's actually, you have to draw on so many different sources of data that don't necessarily align. Um, you know, we can't even agree in Australia on what, you know, the year before school necessarily is. So, whereas that's a lot easier overseas, so... Um, but we're sort of digging into the detail of the report, which is my fault. But um, I think you know, Sam, for, for for someone in your sort of you know chief advocacy position, what are the what are the big picture sort of takeouts from this report? What are the what are the big things that you'll be you know you and ECA will be thinking about over the next sort of few months and into next year? Yes, I think the um, I mean the key issue for us is how do we continue to build public awareness and. Um, understanding amongst politicians that uh, children really are learning from birth and we need to pay attention to the early years and that starts when um, when families are expecting a baby, never mind, have a baby and then take parental leave and then start to think about returning to work, that this isn't something that we can just magically throw an intervention at children the year before they start school and hope for the best, that actually we need to be thinking about early childhood development and early learning um, right from birth. Uh, there is a lot of attention at the moment on three-year-old preschool because that's the next logical extension of universal preschool is from the year before school down to two years before school. But we don't want that to be interpreted by our members or, or the broader public as us only caring about the two years before school. Actually, we are. The campaign itself is calling for two days a week of a quality program. And a quality program could be a play group, could be family daycare, could be um, long daycare, could be uh, another form of mobile service that's operating or a child and family centre. Uh, but really, families should have access to two days a week from the time they finish paid parental leave till the time the child transitions to school. It's not just about three and four-year-olds, but it makes sense as a policy priority at the moment to look at the success we've had as a nation in terms of increasing participation in that year before school and extend that down another year. Sam, do you really believe the figures that we have had that much, uh, like the uh, increase that's claimed? I, I do... I do believe that that's the enrolment figures. I don't believe that's the participation figures, and that's the problem with the data. Um, you know, we have extraordinary difficulty putting an actual number on how many children are participating in preschool in the year before school and how many hours they're participating. What we've got really coming through the data at the moment is enrolment figures. Um, we need to get... We need to improve that and start talking about participation. And we particularly need to encourage states and territory governments to identify who are the children that are missing out. If they're only 3% of the population, that's still significant. And we need to know who those children are and where they are. If families are making a very conscious decision to homeschool, then fair enough. But I don't 
think that's likely. I think it's much more likely that families would love to access preschool in the year before school, but they can't afford it or they don't have one in their area or they don't like the provider and they don't feel that they can trust them with their children. And in those, if that's the situation, then we should be doing something about that. For sure. I The reason I asked that is because, like, obviously coming from New South Wales, which um, is the state that's doing worse on this, I've seen the figures jump um, year after year. And when there's an incentive for the figures to jump, i.e. that you'll actually get your universal access funding from the federal government, <coughs> It makes, and yet the figures as to how you're going have to be supplied by the state. There's a bit of a conflict of interest there. Hmm. Um, yes, but the figures still have to come from somewhere. I don't think. I don't think. I don't think all the services on the ground would be complicit in a. Um, I don't know that the state government can fudge it, I guess, is the point that I'm making. I do think that New South Wales has been making a concerted effort, has been increasing its investment in preschool, has been working with the sector to try and improve uh, participation rates, and I think they have done that, but they still have a way to go. And I think we'll um, we'll probably call out New South Wales as a bit of a specific focus later on, given that there's some there's some sort of stark findings there. But um, you know, Lisa, was there a particular you know statistic or a particular part of the report that sort of stood out for you as well? Um, look, I th I think the one that really stood out for me was um, uh, about which is something that I just hadn't. You know, I hadn't taken out of the AEDC before the actual, you know, uh, the fact that early education really does inoculate children against, um, you know, uh, starting school with a developmental vulnerability. There was some, I'm just trying to, I'm flicking through the report as we talk, trying to find it, but, um, uh, Children who attend some form of early childhood education before starting school are half as likely to have developmental vulnerabilities in one or more domains when they start school in comparison to children who have not accessed early learning. I'd never heard that before. That's incredible. It's definitely something yeah. we need to be sharing out a lot more. And actually mine really quickly is also from the AEDC data. And it's like, this is probably because I've, I spent the, the day one of the snake conference, um, listening to some pretty uh, incredible sort of stories from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander educators and teachers, but that, um, Aboriginal children are twice as likely as uh, non-Aboriginal children to start developmentally vulnerable. And this one just, I, I knew this stat before, but it always shocks me is that, um, Aboriginal children are four times more likely to be developmentally vulnerable in the language and cognitive skills domain which just it, it, that just floors me every time i i hear it that we we just and and and, and that they're kind of and that the the they, that those statistics are kind of stuck they've kind of gotten a little bit better but not sort of significantly better we can't seem to to shift that stuff which is yeah obviously not fantastic yeah what about what about you sam is there something that jumped out for you I'm always devastated by the figures on Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander children. I just think that that's appalling. And I can't believe we don't have a dedicated 
Indigenous strategy as yeah. um, part of the National Partnership Agreement on Preschool and as part of the childcare subsidy reform. I just think this is clearly the priority of our time and we really should be doing something about it. And I'm a bit with you, Lisa, and I'm a bit sceptical about the enrolment numbers for Aboriginal children. I'm just not entirely convinced that those children are getting 600 hours of preschool. <laughs> um, and I, I'd like a bit more integrity in that data and I'd like to work a little bit more closely with state and territory governments to identify the children who aren't attending or participating um, and what can we do about that? And I certainly think, you know, we should be funding child and family centres, we should be funding Indigenous-owned and operated services. Um, it just seems like a no-brainer to me that those would be a funding priority. Yeah, look, and we sure. we sort of had this on our list to talk about later, but we're kind of already talking about it now. But uh, I, I was at day one of the, as I sort of said, at the Snake Conference and the Education Minister, Simon Birmingham, gave the sort of welcoming address. And he he sort of had, I think, some of those concerns as well, or he sort of articulated them a little bit differently. But he said that participation and enrolment are obviously not the same thing and that he had similar concerns that uh, the actual skill of the actual you know uh, attendance in in these in these programs for the right period of time for you know what Lisa really you know calls that inoculation is is seems to be a priority so I mean is there some hope there that you know obviously that those statements combined with I guess what's in the report is there is there a chance that this may that there may be some movement on this that we can look at you know different strategies because um, I mean the other thing for me is that we've you know we failed to meet the closing the gap target for this it had to be reset you know we we, mm. we and so, do you sort of have hope, Sam, that that might be something that can be focused on in the political climate for the next year or two? I, I certainly, I think that we have a a bit of an opportunity right at the moment in that we have a federal minister and a number of state territory education ministers who all are on the same page in terms of the potential for better access to to quality preschool programs being a priority and being a potential solution to some of the um, poor performance Australia is having in education more generally um, and looking at a long <coughs> excuse me looking at that long term rather than just within the current political cycle I think the challenge and um, this is a challenge for ECA and it's a challenge for anybody working in this area is that we have eight very different mm -hmm. systems and coming up with a model that's going to deliver across the country in everywhere from remote communities to metropolitan communities um, in those eight different territories is is really tricky you know no. and it's really hard and we have lots of dilemmas about that in terms of you know what will work in Queensland won't necessarily work in Tasmania, and what's working in South Australia won't necessarily work in WA. And so, how do we come up with sensible um, national solutions so that we can get state and federal governments working together to achieve that bigger outcome? So, not to not to put you on the spot, Sam, but um, we you obviously have a lot of, but I but we are going to do it anyway. You've obviously, you know, spent a lot of time in services around Australia. You know, is like, is there a model in a particular state or territory you would highlight as one that you think is maybe, you know, not necessarily the way? Because I think you make a really good point that what's going to work for one community wouldn't necessarily work exactly in another. But is there a model that you think particularly like that's a really good starting point for something that could work across Australia? Um, 
I think the simple answer is no. I used to hold up the OCT as the example of universal preschool best practice because in the ACT, because it was a planned city um, and and for a variety of other reasons, uh, preschools were located um, so that nobody had to walk more than two kilometres to get to one. Mm-hmm. They were provided as part of the public education system. They were therefore free and you had a right of access so you can guarantee that you can go to your preschool and enrol your child <coughs> the year before they start school and you will get a place. And um, for that reason, the ACT was leading the country for a long time in terms of participation rates for four-year-olds um, because you, they, really, they really had addressed all the barriers, you know. You, could, yeah. you, you didn't have a transport issue. You didn't have to wait on a waiting list or be uncertain about it. Um, you, you, it was free so everybody could afford it. And it created a culture in um, Canberra and the, and the ACT region that all children would go to preschool. Why would you not go to preschool? Preschool is a good thing. Um, children love it. Parents benefit from it um, and and the schools support it. And so there was, um, you know, you really did address all the barriers. What I think is what's changed in recent years is that it is a barrier for some parents to have to deal with the nine to three hour day um, for very young children when both parents are working. And so um, it has raised the question of should preschool be funded in long daycare in order to better support the needs of working families. But if, and our position on that has been, well, we're agnostic about whether the preschool program is delivered in community preschool education um, system or uh, in the private long daycare or community-based long daycare settings. As long as it's the same quality, that's fine. Um, but the difficulty for a funding policy is if you were to make the funding mobile and for parents to choose where they want to access the preschool, would that dismantle the universal provision of free, guaranteed preschool for everyone? And if it would, that could be a bad thing. Um, so we 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 have this. Um, I don't think we've answered this question. You know, would it be better if preschool funding was mobile and parents could choose where they use it, or is it better to be able to say? Um, no, by investing in a single public system, we are able to guarantee everybody a place. Um, what we are thinking now is potentially if preschool funding is extended to three-year-olds, would you then, would that then allow for you to maintain a public p- provision that guarantees a spot for everyone and also allow for mobility so that some children might do their two-year program in a long daycare centre and other others might go to the public preschool attached to the school and we could maintain both systems, that would be the best of both worlds. But is that financially sustainable? We don't know and we're not in a position to model it. You know, really education departments and but we're not even education departments because they have a bit of a conflict of interest but central agencies like Treasury and, and, and um, you know, Premier and Cabinet really need to model that to know to answer the question of whether the two systems are sustainable side by side or whether you need to choose one or the other. One of the things that I was interested in what Burma's, what Simon Birmingham said um, at the um, conference was that he tried to say that the problem with Aboriginal enrolment was that there was a big difference between enrolment and um, attendance. And I bristled when I heard that because it it seemed to me that he was putting the problem 
rather than as a problem of supply or, um, you know, it's supplied at an affordable place, he was putting it onto Aboriginal children and families saying, oh, we offer it to them, but they just don't turn up. And um, one of the, I went back to the preschool um, education ABS um, release last year that came from, you know, the, the National Early Childhood Education Care Collection data just to check those figures. And yes, there is a slight difference between. Um, non-Aboriginal children's attendance and enrolment and Aboriginal children's attendance and enrolment, but it was very minor. So that um, in with I'll just talk about the Aboriginal children. There was, according you know to this particular data. Oh, it actually doesn't give me an Australian one, but, you know, it says um, there was 90% in Western Australia, 87% in um, 90% in Tasmania, 87% in uh, Western Australia, 76% in Tasmania and 57% in Queensland. It doesn't give New South Wales, which was probably good. But it said that the proportion of enrolled children who attended a preschool program was 93%. So in the week that they did, the week before the survey, 93% of Aboriginal children were enrolled actually attended that preschool program. And for other children, it was 96%. So it's a very small, you know, difference which can easily be explained by, you know, cultural things and even illness and ear infections in young people. And yet the minister seemed to be using this as the major problem, you know, the major issue. Did you hear him say that, Sam? And do, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, I didn't hear him say it yesterday, but I have heard him say it before. Uh, I don't, I don't really. I think we need better data to be. I mean, that sounds like I'm ducking the question, but I actually don't think we know. What we're, what the barriers are, um, in terms of is it about the program not being delivered? Is it about the program uh, being a long way from home? Is it about the program being expensive? It, what are what are the participation barriers across the board, not just for Aboriginal children, but what are the participation barriers for the children that aren't getting the full 600 hours um, for the year before school and and then let's systematically address those. I don't think we know what they are and I don't think we really know what's going on um, in terms of uh, participation and some programs just aren't, they simply aren't delivered for the 600 hours. You know, you've got lots of children in regional areas accessing mobile services that are intermittent and um, we need to, we need to get better um, figures on that and be able to address the barriers. And I, But I agree with you. I don't think it's right to, to try and imply that it's a failure of Aboriginal families or Aboriginal communities that children aren't attending because that's simply, yeah, there's no evidence of that at all. Uh, but we do need to look at what resourcing the services are getting, how consistently the services are provided. Uh, we've also got an issue with waivers operating in lots of areas where, you know, children might be attending a preschool but it's not necessarily led by a qualified teacher um, so 
all of that will have an impact on whether we're having an outcome or not. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so what are the big takeaways from the report? And I think uh, what sort of and, – and it sort of fits in with some, some things that ECA have been promoting, I think particularly this year, is the how poorly Australia is doing in terms of uh, participation for three-year-olds in, in uh, early childhood education. So we're well below the OECD average and we're at about uh, 69% of children and, and you know the majority of, of countries in Australia's position are, are aiming for far higher than that. And I know that this has been – uh, you know, particularly I've noticed this year it's become much more of a talking point so you know Sammy you, and I know you sort of mentioned a little bit before about um, it's not to the exclusion of focusing on birth to three as well but you know is this do you think there's a bit of a moment here for this to be pushed and for, for advocates to sort of get behind this push for for two years of um, sort of funded preschool education rather than the one we currently have? Oh yes, I do. I think I think this is the moment to do it. I mean, I was lucky enough to go to the OECD ensemble um, last year, which was all the developed countries coming together to talk about early learning, and um, it was really startling. The obvious there that everybody else had already um, locked in preschool for the three and four year olds, and were talking about zero to three. That's where their focus was. How do we engage families? Um, with with babies and and um, and little ones, how do we smooth the transition back to work? How do we provide really quality programs both to support um, parenting and home learning environments, but also to give children rights of participation and access to programs um, under the age of three? And there was really good, um, healthy, contentious debate about what the better options were, what the best investment was, how to engage families with younger children. And nobody was even considering three-year-old preschool. That was just a that was just a done deal. You know, everybody was already doing that. Um, Did and you feel like this? Australia's sitting there going, well, we're not there yet. <laughs> We've got a little way to go. Um, but it is it is quite startling, you know, when you're in those international forums. I mean, it's it's different for countries that are still um, developing so China, for example, is you know got enormous logistical challenges in terms of delivering early childhood programs um, across such a big population and so dispersed. That's a, that's different. But the countries that we would consider are most like us: New Zealand, UK, Canada, uh, France. There, I mean, this is just they had these debates years ago. They they are already investing in three and four-year-olds um, and they're talking about vulnerable two-year-olds and vulnerable one-year-olds and what do they do for those families. Um, so I really think it's time for us to get this done, you know, and I think the, yeah. Yeah, I think the Mitchell Institute, the two years are better than one, that really galvanised the research, you know, that, that sort of summarised yep. it very neatly. I think we do have – we have a lot of school principals now who are saying, you know, unless there's intervention when children are three, it's almost too late when they come to school. Um, you know, we need to do more with those with, in that younger um, period of development and we have, as I say, federal ministers, state ministers that are on board um, with the, the argument. I, I think there's still a debate to be had in Australia about whether we are um, – building a universal platform for three-year-olds or we are targeting the vulnerable three-year-olds who are most at risk. Um, I have a particular position on that, but I think politically universal. there's going to be a debate on that. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I was really persuaded by a presentation um, from Canada, Canada's um, longitudinal study, which said 
um, unequivocally in their mind, uh, universal platforms deliver targeted outcomes better than targeted programs. So this isn't that all children need to go to preschool at three. This is that vulnerable children will benefit the most from preschool at three, but the way to get the most vulnerable children in the door is to provide a universal program. And I think that that's very persuasive. Um, and so... We're so clear about that because we've had the situation over the last few years where, whereas previously we were funded for both three-year-olds and four-year-olds in our preschool system, we're now only funded for three-year-olds who are from Aboriginal families or low-income families. And so what you have is a majority of four-year-olds in your settings and a few three-year-olds and it's like they have to publicly out themselves as belonging mm. to one of those groups. And in small towns, as many of our preschools are, people, you know, like it's a thing of shame to have your child in uh, as a three-year-old in a preschool because obviously yes, we belong do. to, you know, a group that really needs it. Yes, and we already have two-thirds of three-year-olds in an early learning setting. It's the third that are missing out that probably would benefit the most. Yeah. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't like going around say, oh, I think your child's at risk, you better come to preschool. I think it makes much more sense to say let's all go to preschool and the children that we can identify in preschool may be at risk, we can provide them with some additional hours. I think that would make more yeah. sense. Um, and that's certainly the evidence coming out of the Canada um, Canadian longitudinal studies from what we can tell. And that's certainly the route that we've seen other countries go down like the UK. Um, so I think that makes, makes more sense. More sense. I know there so are people who disagree with me about, Can we just talk about New South Wales for a minute? I'd like to read you a section of the report which says that, you know, 91% in 2015... Australia was within reach of the participation target set by the National Partnership Agreement of 95% of children in the year before school. But New South Wales, the most populous state in Australia, had only 77% of its children participating in preschool for more than 15 hours per week in the year before full-time school in 2015. So can you talk to us a bit about the pariah of the, the, the country? <laughs> can I just say how excited I am to finally have a good balance on the podcast? So we have two ACT-based people. We're going we're gonna to hammer the New South Wales-based podcaster, finally. So, Sam, is there um, yeah, something you'd like to say about New South Wales? Um, I, yes. Look, I feel for New South Wales because I think... <laughs> When I look across social policy programs over the years, um, it can be universal programs, particularly, can be hard to deliver in the in the state with the highest population, um, but still quite dispersed. So it's not. Um, you know, historically, New South Wales hasn't had the preschool infrastructure that other states like the ACT have developed. It does still have quite a dispersed population in some areas, but also all of the complexities of Australia's, you know, most populous place, although I think Melbourne's um, catching up now. But, uh, you know, the challenges of delivering in inner city areas in Sydney, uh, in 
the rapidly expanding western suburbs um, are, are very real for policymakers. Now, I don't think we should let New South Wales off the hook by any means. I think um, it is the advocacy and the evidence and the persistence um, that is driving increased investment in New South Wales and, and New South Wales is catching up. It is spending more. It is, um, you know, trialling different approaches and different models to try and address those participation rates. And so we can keep encouraging that and keep the pressure on. Um, but I, I, feel, I feel for ministers and senior bureaucrats who have inherited systems. It takes a long time to affect change. It does, but I'll just read you some other figures from the report because they're figures that really speak to me. Western Australia and South Australia spend the greatest proportion of total budget expenditure on early childhood services at 1.2%. New South Wales spends the lowest proportion at only 0.4%. And when it comes to per-child spending on early childhood services, the Northern Territory spends the most at 1116 per child and New South Wales spends the least with $246 per child. So despite spending a little bit more money on funding, I still think that participation is directly mm. aligned with expenditure there. Mm. Yep, there's still a way to go, absolutely. Right. It was nice to spend some time. Uh, well, we, we often sort of highlight how crazy New South Wales is, but it's nice to have someone not from New South Wales on the show to, to do the same. But um, look, I'm aware we're, uh, we've, there's so much to go through in the report. But one of the other things I particularly wanted to hit on was some of the data around qualifications. And this is where I think we can be a little bit positive. It's often hard to be positive about the state of early childhood in Australia sometimes with how complicated it is. But, you know, there's some relatively positive data uh, about the qualification levels of educators and teachers working in the sector. So um, it's probably worth, you know, for context, that, you know, the national quality... 16.6% quality... yeah. of the workforce hold yeah. a bachelor's degree, 43.5% hold a diploma or advanced diploma, and 40% hold a certificate three or four. Which is really fantastic. And here, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll be fair and balanced here because I'll say, you know, particularly for someone who's, you know, spent my entire career working in early childhood in the ACT, uh, there was no requirement prior to the National Quality Framework. There was no minimum uh, qualification requirement. You could work in a centre and not even be studying your Certificate 3. So to see, you know, within you know, sort of five or six years that we're now looking at these kind of statistics. I think that's that that to me is really, really positive. There's obviously a long way to go. It'd be great to see that, you know, that that particularly the bachelor degree level increase and, and it probably will as the more as as the national quality framework continues to roll out and there are additional teaching requirements. But that that is I think something where we can say, you know, that that's a positive sort of step for Australia. Yes, it's a very good news story. And I think we should do more actually to congratulate the sector on that and to celebrate that success. Because, uh, you know, when I uh, took up the position with ECA five years ago, there was a lot of very genuine concern that services would not be able to meet those quali qualification requirements under the new um, quality framework back then because there simply weren't enough people in Australia that held those qualifications. And the sector has done a, a fantastic job at supporting its own um, existing workforce to upskill and to do those qualifications as well as to encourage other people to come and do those qualifications and early childhood continues to be you know one of the strongest um, 
areas of, of vet uh, training and, and qualification undertaking uh, there is, and we should be very proud of that. Um, they, we, we do have to... Uh, we do have to defend the importance of qualifications and that is part of the importance of raising public awareness and continuing to work with politicians and senior bureaucrats and decision makers to demonstrate uh, the evidence of why qualifications make a difference and how that impacts And a bit of professional development that wouldn't go astray either, oh, would it? Wouldn't it? Yeah, no, that, that, would, be, that would be good. Um, and and we need to address the the wages um, issue. We simply can't continue um, to underpay people in this sector uh, the way we historically have. Um, however, it doesn't take away from the good news story about qualifications and how many people have undertaken their qualifications in recent years. Yeah, can I look? Can I just say, Sam? Look, and just to, to go off topic slightly, it was it was that was a really great section to read. So, the, um, early learning, everyone benefits, and I guess you know by by implication, you know ECA and yourself are really sort of strong and clear language on the need for professional pay in the sector. And I might have to apologise if 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 there was similar language in the report last year. If, if there is, I don't remember it, but. To be fair, I've forgotten everything from about, you know, a month ago, let alone 12 months ago. But it was really great to see, you know, the the, the sort of peak advocacy body in the sector taking on what, look, what is a tricky and complicated issue. You know, if I could snap my fingers and pay everyone three times what they're getting uh, overnight, I would. But but it's, it is obviously far more complicated than that. But it was, you know, I don't have a question here, but I think that's just, it was great to just see such a strong statement from, from the campaign and I guess from ECA on that issue. And it, it's always been a key principle of the campaign, but the report last year was the first report and it was um, done under extraordinary time pressure. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the wonderful Chris Steele, now MLA, here in the ACT, put in some very long hours um, pulling together the data that was available. And one of the things we have tried to do with this report, I should say, is, is be very moderate and very, this is this is the data. And... The commentary around the data can happen um, uh, amongst all of us, you know, in conversations like this and in uh, media statements we might make and in position statements we might develop. But the report itself, we try to be very careful, is incontestable and is based on the data that's around. And so uh, we just hope that we can continue to uh, expand it um, and draw on a broader set of data. Uh, but... Um, yeah, we, we the, the the position that early childhood uh, educators and teachers should be uh, better valued has always been a key principle of the campaign. That's great to hear. Mm, good. Um, and look, and I think before we before we wrap up for tonight, and we, we obviously appreciate uh, you, you spending all this time with us, Sam. The the other big report that's come out is a is a new uh, OECD report on um, on education data, and I'm probably putting everyone's bottom. I'm probably the first to put up my hand and say I haven't done all of my homework yet. But um, have you had a chance to sort of look at the sort of snapshot of the summary of the new OECD report, Sam? Is there anything you wanted to to highlight for educators and and teachers out there? Oh, I, I, very quick, very quickly. I mean, it's it's disappointing to see Australia going backwards on three-year-old participation uh, in that report. Uh, that's very concerning, and um, I'd say that's got a lot to do with affordability. So I, um, I sincerely hope that we can 
get a concerted push across state, territory and federal governments to address that in the next few years. Yeah, the two things that I that really leaked out for me, and this one's been said a number of times, but um, that early edu edu childhood education in Australia is funded mostly from private sources, i.e. parents, and less from public sources, i.e. the government, than any other country in the world. So um, we've got 28% um, from private services and 37% from government, whereas the other countries are a lot different than that. But the thing that really worried me um, in this one was um, uh, an attempt, I think, by the Australian government to say that um, the real reason that we don't spend much on early education is because um, we start primary school so early at the age of five and because um, uh, primary education is only part-time. And so I dug deeper than the headline figures into the report and it says, in fact, that Australia, you know, like the average age of starting school, as we know, is six, or, you know, that's when children need to be enrolled in all states in Australia is six. And that's absolutely on par with every other country in the OECD. Um, you know, there's one or two countries like Sweden that pushes that out to seven, and there's one or two countries that push it down to four or five. But the absolute average was six. So I don't think that that can be used to explain why, you know, uh, we spend such a small proportion of our GDP on early education compared to every other state in the OECD, every other country in the OECD. Yes. The other thing, I haven't had a chance to do this, um, but I understand there is a there is a complexity in what we count as spending on early childhood education and care, i.e. is it just the preschool um, funding under the National Partnership Agreement or is it also um, the childcare subsidy payments um, by the federal government? My understanding was that there was a issue with that in previous um, OECD reports and so that's where the, the um, it was contested that our percentage of GDP was as low as it was portrayed in the OECD reports. But I have to say, because the report only came out overnight, I haven't had a chance <laughs> to ask anybody whether that issue's been addressed or whether that continues to be the case. This is instant reactions. <laughs> All right. Now, every time I try and wrap up an interview, Lisa always has one more thing to say. So, Lisa, have you got... No. Uh, no? no. <laughs> Excellent. I'm actually going to be allowed to wrap it up in one go. So, Sam, we really appreciate your time tonight. I think we've kept you far longer than we said we were going to, but it was uh, great to go through this really fantastic report. We'll obviously include a link directly to it. And I think like Lisa and I and obviously Leanne from her, uh, you know, from her border in Germany and Poland would also encourage everyone listening to go and sign up for the Early Learning Everyone Benefits campaign. The more voices we have uh, as part of this campaign, obviously, the, the greater possibility for change fabulous thank you thank you for your support your interest and i'm very happy to um spend the time talking about it um, and as you say if people can sign up for the campaign it doesn't cost them anything if they can just go and put their name on the database uh, and start receiving the newsletter we'd be very grateful thanks for your time sam that's great thank you All 
right, welcome back. Thanks again to Sam Page for joining us. We, we really appreciated her taking the time. It's what's been a very busy week for her uh, to, to discuss that report with us, and we hope everyone found it uh, fantastic to listen to. But let's head over to the recommendations for the weekend. Lisa, I think you, you're bringing one far from a field first. I think Leanne has, despite the fact she can't make it for the recording, has decided to send us some recommendations anyway. Look, she has. Will I do mine first or will I do hers? I think, look, you know, I think we'd better get Leanne's out of the way with first. Okay. So Leanne has given us something from Scoop Education. Scoop's a, a New Zealand online kind of website-y thing. Um, and, uh, That's a technical term, everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can see I'm really up on technology. <laughs> um, and anyway, uh, a group which I'm not going to pronounce the Maori name of, um, but they've published an election manifesto providing a guide for early childhood teachers and parents to the main issues facing early childhood education. Um, and it allows parents to compare um, different you know, party policies. Um, but basically their manifesto calls for a, a restoration of early childhood funding to account for inflation since 2010, increase of per-child hourly rate of funding, commitment to work towards funding for 100% qualified teaching staff in teacher-led centres, reduce the under-two teacher-child ratio to one to four on the way to one to three, commit to funding for professional development for early childhood education leaders and teachers, invest in leadership, recognise and respect teachers as equals alongside primary and secondary teachers and demonstrate that services are valued and in integral partners through equitable provision of resourcing for participation. So basically it could be kind of like our manifesto, but you know what I like most about it? The fact that they've called it a manifesto. <laughs> and also that New Zealand's far more likely to actually do all those things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Manifesto is a good word. We need to come it up is, with an early education show manifesto. We'll put that on the like agenda. Case. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, thanks for a far, Leanne. So, Lisa, what, what are you actually bringing us? Okay, so what I'm bringing is an article written um, and placed on LinkedIn by Dr. Deborah Harcourt, who I don't know, um, uh, but she's an early childhood consultant. But I went did a bit of research and discovered that she follows me on Twitter. But I'm going to her, so we won't hold I'm that against her. Followed her back, but. And I'm not going to go into the main points of the article, but there's just some point, some parts of it that really resonated with me. I've just recently done a very interesting project where I got to go around um, for a local government and look at, you know, um, quality and trends in early childhood education and care, especially looking at um, design of buildings design of early childhood centres, what was quality and what was trends in the area and what we should be aiming for. And it was it was a really fascinating project because I got to see so many centres. But one of the things that just really got me by the end of it was how so many services offer, and I'm going to use Deborah's words here because she says it so well, 
A view of a glossy setting replete with timber furnishings, loose parts, mirrors, light boxes, same coloured pencils sorted into glass jars and the latest must-haves from the catalogues. <laughs> and she said particularly noticeable are the big networks of early childhood centres who are purporting that they offer quality environments, many inspired by Reggio Amelia. <laughs> and she then talks about the rise in the number of large centres with no outdoor space. Um, these have been replaced usually in a high-rise or shopping centre locale with simulated outdoor experiences where children have, and she's quoting here, children have access to all manner of gross motor skills and sensory expenses. And so just because those things particularly, um, you know, resonated with me and what I'd seen on that project, I urge everyone to go and read this article and see if they agree with it, if this is what they're seeing in centres. Yeah, look, it is a great piece. I'd really add my recommendation as well. And uh, just to offer us maybe a small teaser for next week, I think we, we might be hearing more about Professor Deborah Harcourt next week. Um, but we'll leave that as a bit of a teaser, hopefully, for episode 46. Um, look, my one's real. We're covering all of the various. We're being very social media savvy this week, Lisa. So you're, you're recommending oh. something on LinkedIn. I'm recommending a hashtag, which I think is the first time we've recommended. This makes me fairly young and trendy, I'm pretty sure. So, uh, I, 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 you know, obviously, I mean, I, I, everyone probably already knew I was pretty young and trendy, but this obviously just confirms it. But if you go onto Twitter and look at the hashtag um, snake, 2017 and that's S-N-A-I-C-C so uh, Snake have been have been running the uh, their, uh, their their conference this year which is um, also a, a, an anniversary of the Bringing Them Home report on the Stolen Generations I was <clears throat> really fortunate enough to just attend the first day uh, it was incredibly powerful and affecting and moving in a whole variety of ways but uh, if you check out that hashtag there's a whole bunch of tweets uh, not just from Snake themselves but all, you know, all the participants it is really just worth checking out and sort of diving into the stream of tweets and seeing the different perspectives of people uh, who were there. Um, it's There's a lot. Yeah, even then, and the State of Early Learning Report highlights this. We, we have so far to go to improve uh, the, 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 what, we are, what was currently the experience for uh, Indigenous people and Indigenous children. Wow. <clears throat> How exciting to be recommending a hashtag. That kind of is cool. I think it cool. It makes me cool, Lisa. You're going to have to up. You're going to have to up it next week. You're going to have to recommend a meme or something. You mean LinkedIn isn't as cool as a hashtag? (laughs) I think it's a it's a continuum. It's a sliding scale. Maybe you could recommend a GIF or something next week. That would make you very cool. Okay. Well, (laughs) our report today had a wonderful GIF. I don't know if you've seen that gift, Liam, but it shows the world and then it shows the percentage of each country's um, participation in early childhood education. And then Australia comes up and their figure isn't as high. Oh, that on the um, uh, Everyone Benefits website. Ah, well, we'll link to that on our website. But uh, that's it for another week. This is the part where I take a deep breath and try and remember all the various things I say at the end of each week and inevitably forget one. Uh, 
the reminder, we have November coming up our first live show. We still have tickets available and we we have a lower price up until the end of October. So this is the time to get in and um, book your tickets now. We're really looking forward to, to having a bit of an end of year party and a live show in Sydney in November. So please uh, head to earlyeducationshow.com forward slash live and you can uh, track down your tickets there. Um, while you're at earlyeducationshow.com, that's our main website, you can hit uh, contact us and get in touch. Uh, you can also hit support the show where you can head to our Patreon page and support the show for as little as $1 a month. That really helps us do some new fun and exciting things with the podcast and, and keep the lights on. Uh, if you can't do that, head to the Apple Podcast Store if you're on one of those fangled eye devices and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. That really helps other people find the show. Uh, you can track us down individually by emailing earlyedushow at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at earlyedushow, both of those. And we're really close to a 1,000 likes. I think I said this last week. I was hoping we might tick over by the time we got round to this one, but we didn't quite make it. So share us Get out. Get your friends to like us. Absolutely. Just harass them, message them until they've done it. That's that's a great way to win friends and influence people. Uh, you can also obviously track down uh, the three of us usually uh, on Twitter. Leanne uh, is at Leanne M. Gibbs 3, where she's probably happy to share whatever particular Danish or pastry she's eating, which exotic European locale. So feel free to check her out there. I'm at Leanne McNicholas. And I'm at Lisa J. Bryant. And until we're back next week, we hope everyone has a fantastic week in the early childhood education care centre. back then or is it... Uh, I think it might be another one with just the two of us, Lisa, if people can put up with that for a little while longer. (laughs) We did this exact same bit last week, Lisa. We're going to have to come up with new material. (laughs) So it's, it's bye for me. And for me. 